congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our text uh, this morning is verse 4 of chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians. In our text, we, we read these words concerning our Savior. He was crucified in weakness. And this, uh, this statement about Christ, we might say, it, it serves as a, as a standalone kind of quotation. Uh, it's such a profound statement of what is biblical and true that uh, an entire sermon, certainly our meditation, could be focused exclusively on these words and the wonder of their meaning. They speak of the reality of Christ's humiliation and suffering. But we hear these words in connection with what seems to be a rather complicated uh, defense that Paul is giving about his ministry. It is stated that Christ was crucified in weakness. It's stated as a matter of fact, but it's, it's not really the main point that he's making here. In fact, uh, the, the wording is for, he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. And it seems like the second part of that statement is really the main focus of his attention here. As if uh, the first part of it, it's kind of an acknowledgement, it's kind of an admission, but it's not the whole story. And indeed, we want to hear the rest of the story, and we will give attention that, to that uh, this morning as well. But we want to do that also in connection with the surrounding verses. And, and that connection has to do with this issue of weakness. It has to do with, with Paul's weakness. It has to do with the way uh, weakness is judged by certain people there in Corinth who viewed weakness in a, in a worldly way. And on the other hand, in our text, there is power. But here again, it's not the kind of power that the world gets excited about. And so we're giving attention to this verse, actually both this morning and this afternoon. And uh, if we were to do so under a broader theme that embraces both of these messages, they both have to do with weakness and power. But they both have to do with weakness and power that is not of this world. Weakness and power that is not to be understood in uh, typical, common, worldly terms, but as they're spoken of here in this passage. So this morning we're going to look at the first part of our text concerning the weakness and power of Christ, and then, the Lord willing, this afternoon we'll look at uh, the second half of our text concerning our weakness and power in him. So we begin by looking at the weakness and power of Christ. And we'll, we will dwell on that statement that Christ was crucified in weakness. And we might say that actually that's kind of an understatement, isn't it? Because Christ was crucified in, in agony. Christ was, was crucified in abandonment by God and men. But this word weakness also here, it really carries a world of meaning. 
Christ's death in weakness is a marvel of God's saving grace. And yes, this statement, though he was crucified in weakness, even though it's not the main point, and, the Paul is and Paul is going to move on to speak of Christ's power, yet it is a positive and important affirmation that he makes that Christ was crucified in weakness. And it's not something that the apostle here is ashamed about as if he's got to quickly move on because this is an unpleasant subject. It's not something that he is apologetic about whatsoever. Yes, it's true that the weakness of Christ is uh, offensive to the world. The message of Christ crucified was to the Jew a stumbling block. It seemed to be totally at odds with their expectation of a Messiah who would be a great king and who would liberate them from Rome according to uh, their common expectation. And the message of a crucified Savior a son of God who suffered the most shameful death reserved for criminals? Well, that was judged to be foolish by the Romans, by the Greeks, by non-Jews. And we live in a world, don't we, that despises weakness. We might say the world despises weakness of every kind, it's just bad, simple as that. And we can be influenced by that, that attitude and uh, be very unwilling or hesitant to uh, acknowledge our own weakness or to, to face it, to admit it to ourselves or, or to others because it, it seems something shameful, contrary to uh, a healthy self-image. We are strong, right? Our world celebrates strength, physical strength, or a kind of uh, personal strength. You're not going to take anything from anyone. You're going to stand upon your rights. You're going to look out for yourself. You're not going to show weakness. And uh, the world has its own ways of judging such things that is that is contrary to Christ. Christ was crucified in weakness, and that is, that is our, our boast. We glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, we don't simply hurry to the next point about his power this morning, but we want to dwell here a bit and reflect upon the meaning of uh, this statement because this weakness is really at uh, the heart of the gospel. Many of the Corinthians were impressed. Uh, they were enamored by, by power. And that made them very vulnerable to the influence of these imposters, these uh, false apostles, uh, super apostles that, that claim to have authority, that seem to exhibit a kind of power that uh, impressed many of them. They came with powerful speech of worldly eloquence. And they weren't afraid to exert a kind of commanding, ruling power among the Corinthians. 
And you know that there are always people that will be impressed by that. That's one of the attractions of the cults, isn't it? A powerful personality, a charismatic leader who can get people to do what they say amazingly. Paul says if someone slaps you in the face, you bear it. Describing people's submission to people who exhibited a kind of worldly power and influence to control them simply by their their own personal uh, charisma or their spiritual abuse that they were willing to take. The world is often enamored even uh, by a kind of religious power that people might exert over others. God is never impressed with that. We read in the very opening uh, chapters of uh, this the first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 1. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And of course, God's way of dealings uh, with uh, this world is revealed supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul didn't try to match these uh, super apostles. He wasn't ashamed to be judged as weak himself. That was the accusation against him. His bodily presence is weak, and his speech is contemptible. And what does Paul do? Oh, no, no, no. No, rather, again, even at the outset, he, he acknowledges that when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Oh, yes, there is power, but it's a different kind of power that, than that which impresses the world, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. People despise weakness. But we have a strong Savior, but a Savior whose saving glory was revealed in weakness. And so the weakness of Christ is a subject of our wonder and our our worship. Let's look at some of the features of this this weakness of Christ. And we must uh, recognize from the outset that there was a kind of natural weakness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not as he is the Son of God, not as he is the Lord of glory, but as the Son of God joined with our true humanity, as one who was revealed from the very uh, appearance, his very appearance upon earth in weakness as a helpless baby, dependent upon his mother completely. 
He possessed a natural kind of weakness as one who shares in our nature. In fact, the letter to the Hebrews even tells us that he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. That doesn't mean that he himself was sinful. But he assumed to himself our nature as it was weakened, bruised and broken by the fall, we might say. He had a natural kind of weakness that needed food and drink and sleep. And to be deprived of these things, just as it is for you and I, would mean exhaustion. He slept in a boat during a storm. He rested uh, weary on a well there in Samaria. He had this natural kind of weakness. But in addition to that, he had an inflicted weakness. He was crucified after being up all night. No doubt suffering from a lack of food and drink. Having been scourged, whipped in such a horrible manner, a way that would open his back to gashing bloody wounds. He had been beaten. He had been forced back and forth to stand before the high priest and then uh, Pilate and then to uh, Herod and back to Pilate. He was too physically weak to carry his cross, suffering from dehydration and loss of blood, real human blood. He had real flesh that was lacerated by the wounds of the whip and the thorns and the nails that pierced his hands, real human nerves that screamed in pain as they were pierced with hard and rusty iron. He had a natural weakness, but he had an inflicted kind of weakness. He was made weak by human cruelty. His, we must say, also was an unfathomable weakness. In other words, it involved a weakness that uh, was so great and so deep that we can't really measure it. We can't understand it. It's a weakness that went simply beyond the fact that he shared our human nature with its common uh, weaknesses or beyond the fact that as a true human, he suffered such horrible cruelty in his body but he suffered also an otherworldly kind of weakness. He suffered the weakness of his human nature, but it was upheld by divine power in order to suffer. You know, there are a great, there's a great variation among people in terms of their capacity for suffering, isn't there? There are those who naturally have a very strong constitution, perhaps a strong will. People that could endure uh, torture, and in a way, because of the very strength, they would have to endure the experience of weakness far longer and to a depth that a weaker person wouldn't experience because they'd have a heart attack, perhaps, early on in the process, and they would die. And so there's a sense in which even a strong physical constitution could subject someone to a more uh, prolonged and a deeper feeling of helplessness and weakness as they continue to endure such such a such pain 
And there is also the, the grace and the power of God that has often sustained his people in the time of suffering. Think of the Apostle Paul. Think of what he endured as a servant of the Lord. He was whipped five times. He was, he was beaten with rods. He was stoned. It's like, you know, after the second whipping, who wouldn't be suffering from PTSD? Who wouldn't say, I'm, I can't make myself vulnerable to that kind of treatment anymore? I can't handle it. What does the Apostle Paul do? He continues in this ministry in which he was always subject to such horrible physical mistreatment and abuse. And yes, the explanation lies in the abundance of God's grace and power manifested in this faithful servant of the Lord. And it's true that it may well be that the Lord Jesus Christ had a strong physical constitution. And there could be a natural explanation how he could bear up far longer than others would under the circumstances. And yes, the power of God also upheld his human nature in suffering, but that doesn't explain it fully and adequately, does it? Think of what the catechism asked of, of our mediator. Why must he also be true God as well as true man? And the reason is that by the power of his divine nature, he might uphold his humanity so as to sustain the wrath of God against him. You understand what it says? It doesn't say that he was so upheld by the divine nature that his suffering was somehow lessened, that it was somehow mitigated by his divine power. No, he was upheld by divine power so that he could go deeper and deeper and deeper into the depths of anguish which would have completely annihilated us. It's by his divine nature that he was able to experience an unfathomable weakness that we cannot comprehend. as one who suffered so greatly for us. There is an otherworldly and incomparable weakness which our Lord Jesus suffered in his crucifixion. And all the while, throughout his life, even to his death, it was also a willing weakness. Yes, it's the eternal Son of God that assumed our nature and took upon himself the form of a servant. And in his suffering, well, he could have called 10,000 angels uh, to destroy the world and to set him free. Yes, he could have come down from that cross. But as it says in Isaiah, I gave my back to those who strike. I gave my cheeks to those who plucked out the hair. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. He gave himself for us. He surrendered himself to the utmost weakness without resistance. He yielded himself to absolute weakness, even to death. And then, 
than power. He was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. And that's what we consider secondly. Christ lives by the power of God. After speaking of his suffering in Acts chapter 13, Paul says, but God raised him from the dead. We worship and we wonder and marvel at redeeming weakness. And we don't shy away from the fact. We don't hurry on to more uh, uplifting or positive subjects. But we also recognize that his weakness was a prelude to glory. Yes, he was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. But he was also declared to be uh, the Son of God, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. And certainly that is involved in our text when it says that he lives by the power of God. But our text doesn't refer only to this event of his erection, of his uh, resurrection. Uh, he was made alive by divine power. Yes, indeed, his human nature, his body was restored to life. It was uh, glorified with eternal life. That very nature that he shares with us was raised and glorified as our nature will be raised from the dead and, and glorified. But he himself always lives, as the writer to the Hebrews says, by the power of an endless life. He did not come. He did not come as a priest into this world according to a fleshly commandment like that of the Levites. But after this order of Melchizedek, he came according to the power of an endless life. And he always lives to make intercession for us. He had power to lay down his life. Though crucified in weakness, it was a willing weakness. In fact, it was a very, the very act of the Son of God. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. And that means that it is divine power and even his own divine power by which he raised himself and by which he always lives as one who has life in himself, even as the Father has life in himself. This is the power of God. It is this Christ which Paul says is mighty toward you or mighty among you. You want a picture, brothers and sisters, of that power of Christ which is mighty among you? Well, we're given such a picture. It's found in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. In this vision that John saw after he heard this voice behind him, he, he turned and 
uh, saw seven golden lampstands. And you know what that refers to, don't you? That refers to the churches of Asia Minor, among whom Christ walks. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his hand, his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Yes, that is the vision that John, that we are given of the resurrected Lord of glory manifested here in divine power. He holds the keys of death and of Hades. Isn't that a wonderful comfort? That this living Christ is sovereign over life and death in these times in which we live. What a precious thing to know. Our times are in his hands. He exercises absolute power over those that would destroy the church. It's a tremendous word of comfort that he gives to the church. It will repeat it in the specific words that he gives to various churches. But there, there are also words that remind us that he is a righteous judge. He holds the keys of death and Hades also to exercise that judgment, even to address sins. And in the context of this statement in our text, that's really at issue, isn't it? Paul is speaking as someone who is coming to administer a kind of justice. That's the significance also of his reference, his repeated reference to uh, coming the third time. And the fact that it's by the mouth of uh, two or three witnesses that everything is established, right? That's the language of judgment. That's the language of trial. That's the language of church discipline. And that seems to be at issue here, right? He fears, he regrets the thought of having to come there and deal with sexual immorality and fornication and the other sins that are listed there. And in effect, he says, you seek, you seek uh, evidence of the power of Christ in me? Well, when I come, I will come in the power of Christ, and I will not spare those who have sinned. In other words, he would come with Christ's authority also to exercise discipline in the church. The keys that Christ holds are keys that admit to the kingdom. Any and all who hear his voice and who are gripped indeed with his authority, the authority of his word, which is like a sword that proceeds from his mouth, that, that uh, exposes us before him. 
and discerns the thoughts and intents of our hearts and lays everything bare before him. Brings us to an awareness of our sins. But it's a word that pronounces grace and forgiveness to all who turn to him and who believe in him. And they experience that that power of resurrection. They hear his voice and are raised from spiritual death so that they live. Oh yes, that's the demonstration of Christ's power. And bringing people to spiritual life from spiritual death. But the proof of that power then in opening and shutting is evident here in that ministerial action that Paul would take in his name. Brothers and sisters, that's uh, also the power uh, that we are called to see this morning, a power that, uh, that we are to revere in the gathering of God's people. Yes, Christ is present in the midst of his church. He is present by his mighty word, spoken in weakness. But as it is the word of the Lord, it is a word with authority. He is present among us as one whose eyes are like a blazing fire, whose knowledge penetrates to the heart of each one of us present here. Who knows whether indeed it is our desire to have a single heart to fear and to serve the Lord as we sang earlier. Who knows if there is something between us and our Lord. Something that he calls us to deal with in the way of honesty before him in the way of sincerity, the sincerity of repentance, the willingness to be corrected, the willingness to be converted, the desire to be restored and strengthened in our, in our love for him. He's present with us in his grace. Yes, He is no longer weak, but that's because his weakness actually accomplished redemption for us. And his power and his exaltation, his resurrection from the dead, is the proof that by his weakness and by his sufferings, he paid for our sins. So that his power is not terrifying to us. But we we may draw near to him with the familiarity as to one who knows us indeed, but as one who loves us, as one who greets us with the assurance of grace and peace and who, who welcomes us into his presence and who nourishes us and feeds us in his love. Yeah, that's the the gracious power of the Lord Jesus Christ manifested in the assembly of his saints. He's in the midst of his church. Through that ministerial word that is proclaimed to us, in which Christ speaks to us, a word of grace, sometimes a word of correction, 
but a word that restores and renews us and strengthens us, strengthens us in faith, sometimes with a strength to bear hardship and suffering without despair, but a strength that is not of this world, but is of his grace. Lord willing, we'll consider more of that this afternoon. Amen.